Welcome to From What If to What Next, the podcast where imagination never sleeps. That corner of your world where no one will ever say yes but, or seek to constrain the soaring potential of your imagination and great ideas. Rather the place where we give your imagination and sense of what's possible a shoulder massage and a good pampering. If you're listening to this and are already one of the many wonderful folk who support this podcast at patreon.com slash from what if to what next, then thank you very much. And if you aren't, might I invite you to do so? It does enable us to do all that we do here. Thank you so much. And so to today's episode. Today we're looking at land. Land isn't something we talk about very often, but today we're exploring the extent to which the lack of access to land that so many people experience for recreation, for living, for creating food producing and other land-based enterprises, and for the vast new forests that we need to create, how that impacts our collective imagination. At the very time in history when we need to be at our most imaginative, when we need to be able to imagine a new zero carbon, more just, uh, equal and biodiverse future, to feel that anything is possible, that we have the power to reimagine everything, not least how our food is produced, might it actually be that it really, really matters at a time when so many people need access to fresh fruit and vegetables that since the 80s we've lost 27% of small holdings in the UK, or that according to the Campaign to Protect Rural England, a third of UK farms under 50 hectares have been lost between 2005 and 2015. Or that in the UK, BME communities are 60% less likely to be able to access green space and natural environments than their white counterparts. Or that the inequality of land use in the UK is especially stark, with land concentrated into the hands of very few wealthy individuals and families. Or that 1% of the population owns more than 40% of the land in England alone, with 30% of land in the hands of aristocracy and gentry. Does it have to be like this? And what if it wasn't? All of which leads us to today's what-if question. What if a revolution in our relation to land unlocked a revolution of the imagination? I'm joined today by two amazing guests who've been doing so much in this, as it were, field. Jazina Kalist is a health professional and community organiser. After burning out of academia, she began thinking more deeply about food growing and land justice. Under an apple tree in June 2019, she co-founded Land in Our Names, a black-led collective addressing land inequalities affecting black people and people of colour's ability to farm and grow food in Britain. She loves forest walks and hopes one day to set up an eco-village. And Chris Smage is a small-scale farmer in Somerset and the author of the brilliant A Small Farm Future, making the case for a society built around local economies, self-provisioning, agricultural diversity and a shared earth. Previously, he was a university-based social scientist and is currently a director of the Ecological Land Co-op and was a founding member of the Land Workers Alliance. His indispensable blog is smallfarmfuture.org.uk. Welcome both. It's wonderful to have you here. Thanks. It's nice to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. I'd like to invite you both, if I may, to get comfortable and to close your eyes and to imagine that you are leaving 2020 and travelling forward through time to 2030. And those 10 years that you travel through, although it certainly didn't look very auspicious in 2020, actually turned out to be a time of the most extraordinary, profound 
deep radical transition in this country. And what we saw with so many things that in 2020 felt impossible came to be institutions that weren't working faded away and were replaced. And the 2030 that you arrive into is a future in which a revolution in relation to land over the past 10 years has unlocked a revolution of the imagination. You're now in a future, the future that you step out into is one where so much more feels possible in 2020. And I'd like to just invite you both, if you might take us on a walk around that future, what that looks like and feels like to you, to give us a taste of the vision that gets you out of bed every morning to do the work and the activism that you do. Uh, Chris, maybe we start with you? Well, I think the revolution that's happened as I see it is going to be largely a revolution in notions of justice, um, the, the, the idea that everybody globally has fair access to land and its products, and perhaps also thinking about future generations so it's not only fair access to land for, for us who are now living, but that people in the future will also be able to enjoy the same fine things. And perhaps thinking also about non-humans, about other organisms and some sense of their own fair access to the earth. So what that would look like to me, I think, certainly as we walked around the countryside here in the UK, I think it would mean a much more diverse farmed landscape with lots of people working in it. So, so in fact, perhaps more than farming, it would look like a more gardened sort of landscape. We would see a lot more trees, but they would be trees that were integrated with farms and gardens. They'd be what I call working trees that we would be cutting down and making use of and replanting. There'd be a lot more fruit and veg being grown in Britain, less cereals, especially very little in the way of cereals grown to feed livestock. But we might actually see more livestock than we're accustomed to seeing in the landscape. Uh, Not because there is more livestock. Actually, there'd be a lot less livestock than there currently is. But it would also be out in the landscape working, uh, not shut away in sheds and being shovel-fed with um, grains and legumes that that are grown in, in arable farming situations. So the sort of farming and gardening we'd see would be pretty intensive. A lot of people at work in the landscape, but in a much less ecologically destructive way. So I think we'd be hearing a lot more insects. We'd be hearing birds, probably a less tidy landscape. Um, there'd be a lot more what often people often call weeds around. We might even be eating some of the weeds. There'd be less roads and heavy infrastructure. And as I say, a lot of people working in the landscape, I think they will be imagining a lot of things and there'll be a lot more freedom to for people to sort of think through their own livelihoods. So it's going to be a time of experimentation. People are going to be experimenting with lots of different ways of producing livelihoods and growing food for themselves. Also experimenting with many different ways of living, different household arrangements, different ways of living and loving other people. Nevertheless, I think there will be some convergence um, towards the ways that people did this in the past in low energy, low impact systems. So a lot of variants on traditional mixed organic lay farming and also um, variants on small scale farm households of the past. So 
parents and children living together and gardening together, but also sharing and working with others in the wider landscape, particularly around things like woodland use and water irrigation and so on. So at one level, I'm going to go full rural little and, and, and uh, tell you about uh, the, the, the children that I'm going to hear singing as, as, uh, as you walk around, people whistling as they, um, as they work in the fields and, uh, and so on and risk, uh, risk the scorn of the eco-modernists. Um, but as we, as we tune in more closely, I think we will also hear people arguing. We're going to hear neighbours disputing with each other we're going to hear households in some degree of conflict with each other, people arguing and so on, because, you know, this isn't a completely benign world. You know, it's hard work um, producing a livelihood, you know, when we're not drawing implicitly from the work of others or from the work of the future. So in, in some ways, it's going to be difficult and people are going to be a, a bit stressed out at times. But nevertheless, I think people are going to be fully engaged in producing a, 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 a you know, a positive livelihood. And part of that, I think, is going to be if we walk from the countryside into the city, I think the big cities uh, are going to be thinner in terms of people. And hopefully that will provide a bit of space within them for people to do more interesting things. But there'll be a rejuvenation of local and regional life markets in towns. You know, when people talk about the markets in this future, uh, they won't mean some kind of abstract, quantitative, global price type of thing. They'll they'll be talking about actual markets where they're going to trade. And, you know, politics, I think, is going to be, again, more local and regional. You know, people will be engaging in sorting out their issues at local and regional level rather than the kind of politics that we read about in the newspaper today. So that, in a nutshell, I think is the, the future that I would perceive. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. Uh, Josina? I'm already loving Chris's future and very thrilled at the idea of hop, skipping and jumping away from 2020. And the deep radical change that I would envisage is really building on what we already know about how our ancestors farmed and the indigenous farming practices that we have kind of had repackaged and given back to us in, in so many ways. I would also love to see more people that are existing outside of cities and in rural spaces. And for people like me, people of colour, black people, that would require um, the rural racism that so many people experienced in 2020 to have been addressed in a meaningful way. And we think about who's working on farms and making sure that people are not being exploited and that both the land isn't exploited and the people aren't being exploited. That farms and food growing spaces, grow houses are all spaces that can exist as sites of political organising, um, innovation, education, as well as the obvious food production. And that everyone is supported to, to grow food that it's not something that is seen as a, a hobby and that there's more of a kinship-based commons that exists rather than privately owned little strips of land and that there's a degree of redistribution taking place, that there's been some reckoning about how people manage to have the vast hordes of land that exist in 2020. 
I think that's that for now. Great. Thank you both. Thank you. That's fantastic. Uh, Chris, in A Small Farm Future, you wrote, if there's no place in your utopia for providing necessities of life like food and fibre for yourself, you'll have to consider what you can offer people who are willing to provide them for you and weigh the implications of your extreme dependence on their goodwill, which I loved. This move that you advocate from consumers to at least in part producers, how much might we see this unfold when levels of practical skills have fallen so precipitously? Well, it's a good question. I mean, I think there's, you know, I suppose there's two ways of answering that. You know, I think firstly, there's a great thirst, you know, we've seen it with the pandemic. There's a great thirst that people have for just growing some food and, and, and engaging with the landscape. And, you know, part of the problem is, as you know, as, as both of us have just touched on that, you know, there's lack of equity of access to land, you know, even to a small garden space, uh, even for people living in a, a lot of urban situations where people can't do that. But I think you can always take that one extra step, even if it's just growing some herbs on a, on a windowsill in a, in a tower block, you know, plants want to grow, people want to grow plants so we can start from wherever we're at. But yeah, long term, I think we've got a huge amount of work to do to build up the skills base. Farming has become a very specialist and very diesel intensive and and industrial um, kind of pursuit. And so, you know, we really need to break down this, uh, the distinction between large scale farming and amateur gardening. We all need to sort of work on our skills to sort of fully inhabit the landscape again and and to become producers. But, you know, we can pretty much start from where we are. And, uh, you know, there's a great culture of gardening in this country that we can build on. And as my kids always uh, impress on me, it's amazing what you can learn from videos on YouTube. <laughs> Josina, how, how does the how does the need for a great reskilling fit into your thinking and your activism? You know, it, it might be possible to unlock land and access to land, but how do we train people to be enthusiastic to do the work on it once we've got it? It is something that there is a great awakening for, and that has been heightened by pandemic. And like, that's not just here as listening to a podcast that's in set in Trinidad and they had exactly the same thing and they've got a lot more rural spaces there and a, a sort of more um, immediate connection with food growing but still there's that shift in so many parts of the world. For me it's about representation and that people need to see that it's possible for people that look like them to do food growing in a way that's not stigmatized or associated with hardship or the lack of prosperity, which I think is, you know, there's been a, a big sort of programming towards people thinking that, you know, to do well, they have to leave behind um, histories of working with the land, of being land stewards, of um, having professions in agriculture. In a country where urban has become synonymous with black and blackness, that's a big shift that would need to take place. And for a lot of people, they fear being in the countryside or places where there's a low density of people that share a similar background. And there's there's a lot of unknown things, but then we do know that there are community food going projects and we need to have greater access to those 
environments where you'd have leaders and teachers who are from diverse backgrounds. And for me, having done a permaculture course and asking, okay, well, you're saying these are ancient practices, where do they come from? You know, honouring the source of that knowledge has been lost that permaculture teachers couldn't say where, you know, which countries <laughs> these practices originated. So I think that's a big part of um, building people's pride in being able to grow food and making it feasible financially. And, you know, I remember learning about allotments being sized at a parcel that would subsist, like you couldn't live off what you can grow in an allotment. You know, they've been deliberately sized at being too small to feed yourself and your family. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we had uh, we had Dee Woods on uh, an earlier episode who was talking about some of the amazing things people were growing in London, all kinds of amazing vegetables and fruits I'd never even heard of. Oh, yeah, that's a really good point, actually. It's also about building culturally appropriate food. And the people that I work with in London are names so who are having this conversation about, what is kohlrabi? How are we meant to eat that? No one's ever heard of that before. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not like we're going to be able to start growing um, planting in the UK, but we should be able to have acknowledgement of the foods that we eat and foods that are culturally appropriate for lots of people. Uh, you know, I was raised eating Caribbean food, that that is something that we should be encouraged to learn how to grow. And, you know, that might be a slight advantage of a changing climate that some things become more possible to grow that, that weren't possible to grow before. Mm, absolutely. And so I, for me, at the root of a lot of this is there's a, a question about longing. How do we create uh, a deep longing for a more land-based, diverse future? I always think, you know, when Neil Armstrong went to the moon, it wasn't his idea or JFK's idea. We'd been going to the moon for decades before then in songs and stories. And Tintin went to the moon and Frank Sinatra went to the moon. And by the time JFK said, let's go to the moon, it took only took nine years. And the average age of the team that did that was 26. When land-based careers are often dismissed, how do we make growing food the coolest job ever how do we create that sort of longing that people would have uh, to do that Jazina? it would be great if it doesn't feel like a job because what's cool about a job when you have to commute or wake up really early you know you have to make it something which means that oh I've seen birds that I've never seen before because I'm out on the land you know I get to see sunsets and sunrises it's everything about being outside if you're outside or you know building a relationship that starts with a seed learning about the seed savers and the amazing as I Levy who unfortunately passed last year you know the work of the Palestine heirloom seed library all these people that have been doing this for years and years you know Vandana Shiva's work that you can engage with real heroes around very specific parts of the growing process and each part is so important and then you can become a specialist in that for me that that makes it the coolest job ever and you know some of my favorite people in the world right now are the ones that geek out when I tell them I've you know I can gift them a black thorn you know and they're like what's that how what what, what can I do with a slow <laughs> also that's what I love about it is it can turn your life into something that's so transactional without money you know, every food growing project that I visit, they can give me something and I don't have to do anything apart from show up and, you know, take part, maybe put my hands in the soil, make them feel better, you know. So it's everything that makes it not a job <laughs> that makes it cool. <laughs> 
But if you can live off this alternative lifestyle, which means that you're not just dependent on whatever Tesco chooses to put in their fridges, then yeah, like that, that will make so many people feel better physically, their mental health, There's so many aspects of it that are more than what they would do between nine and nine to five. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Chris. Yeah, interesting. I mean, I think in some ways the change is already upon us. I mean, I I had a young guy visiting our holding um, a few days ago and he was saying how, uh, you know, he's just setting up a small commercial growing project and said he talked with his uh, parents and grandparents about it and his granddad said, oh, you know, farmers are the lowest of the low. And I think a lot of people of that generation talk about backbreaking work. But I think really what's behind it is that it's not so much the hard work as the social status, you know, the idea of being a a peasant under the thumb of the aristocracy. And and so, you know, people of that generation, I think, were quite glad to leave the land. And, you know, we have this whole kind of urban modernist thing. You know, you were talking about space flight. That's exactly it, this kind of notion that we've got this high-tech urban, very energy intensive future ahead of us. And I think certainly that was the sort of post-war generations. That was very much the expectation, you know, farming was was going to be this great sort of industrial chemical enterprise. But I think young people now, it's a very different world. And, you know, I've sort of been involved in the quote unquote alternative farming movement for 20 odd years. And when I first got involved, I'm in my fifties now, I was sort of one of the youngest people around. (laughs) But now when I go to conferences and so on, there's so many young people who are switching on to this. And it and it's, you know, partly because of the positives of being outdoors, doing doing healthy work. Um, But also I think you, you know the 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 mainstream world of work is looking less and less attractive and people are more and more aware of accruing debt you know paying huge amounts of money to get a a roof over their heads and being part of the rat race so I think it's about sort of trying to build on that but I I think a big argument um, that you know or a big discussion we have to have is is more nuance around this whole idea of technology and where we're headed you know you get the argument that this is all a kind of rural idyll and a backward looking romantic sort of notion Whereas I think, you know, a lot of our ways of thinking about technology and urbanism seem increasingly romantic to me. So, you know, it's not about trying to go back to some idealised image of the past that never happened, but just about, you know, learning what we can from people who have lived low impact rural lifestyles, but also acknowledging some of the bad things about it, as Jacina was talking about, you know, the racism, the hierarchy and so on. So, you know, it's about trying to sort of pull all those different strands together and create a positive vision in the face of what we know is happening, you know, climate change, energy futures, economic inequality and crisis and so on. Um, But, you know, I think that story is, that story is there. Um, You know, we just need to pick up the, the, the pieces of the jigsaw as it were, and just keep putting that together in positive ways. And on on that, you in, in the beginning of Small Farm Future, you list ten crises that intersect. Are we looking at a future where the sort of unraveling of things is kind of inevitable, and what we're doing is just putting in place, building kind of lifeboats for for something that is inevitable? Or are we are we looking at adaptation or mitigation here? Should we be actively campaigning for something or should we just be working away to build something that we can step off onto uh, next? Uh, Jazina? Mm. Um, 
Yeah, I had something to say that was in response to... Oh, do please, yeah. But it's also fitting under the same question. I mean, as a sort of ex-young person recently, I'm 32, um, I sort of, I know what it's like to, to deal with the precarity and talking to older generations about like, you know, they're like, oh, why don't you want a secure job, permanent position or a mortgage? And I'm like, no, that doesn't exist anymore for my generation in the same way that it would have, you know, like the milestones have completely changed. So with that in mind, it's just what kind of precarity are you prepared to deal with? Working freelance is a lot more normalised. How can people who are envisaging something beautiful around land work make it feel less precarious or make it feel like there's a network that will catch you if you fall through something, you know, that you're trying to, to, to build up? So <laughs> those are just initial thoughts. Like precarity is a massive issue, I guess, for building lifeboats, you said? I don't know. I mean, some days everything feels completely futile. And I think if you're doing anything relating to climate justice or, or land justice, then then it can feel like there's just insurmountable odds. But I mean, I feel like it's the only way that we could possibly survive or thrive is to to try try and reformulate the relationship to food, try and reformulate our relationship to to work and to cities and not be dependent on Pret-a-Manger to feed us or Tesco's. How, how, do we, how do we build community in a way that's completely different as well? We can't get around the precarity or the insecurities that people have, particularly in my generation and younger, but we can try and model the behaviour that we'd like to see with a sort of, you know, like we're, we're rolling a dice, we don't know whether it's going to work. We've got, you know, rising current fascism and lots of very, very powerful bodies in the world that don't really care if we can feed ourselves in 20 years' time. But we have to, and we have to remind people that, that they can do something about it as well now. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Thank you. Uh, Chris? Yeah, I mean, very, very along very similar lines. I mean, yeah, I think it is a case of adaptation more than mitigation. I mean, I'm not saying that, you know, we shouldn't be trying to sort of mitigate some of the consequences that are that are coming down the pipe towards us in various ways. But I mean, ultimately, uh, it seems pretty clear to me that climate change is going to upend our world in numerous ways. Energy futures, you know, we're going to have less energy available than we're accustomed to, um, certainly in the wealthy countries in the world, and the economy is not going to continue growing in, in, in the way that um, you know we've been accustomed to over the last 50-odd years. So I think a small farm future of one kind or another is more or less inevitable, and, and the job really is to make it, um, you know, as, as you've been um, pushing us to, to outlining, you know, the job is to make it a pleasant small farm future rather than an unpleasant or a, a kind of fascist one. And so, but, you know, I think there are possibilities there. So if, if we're talking about lifeboats, I mean, if I can uh, mangle your metaphor, you know, it, the, the worst case scenario is that, that a few of us will be bobbing around in these ramshackle lifeboats and a lot of other people will be drowning but what I hope we can do is actually make the lifeboats well, not only big enough for everyone, but actually uh, nicer than the original boat that we were on and a good place to be. And, you know, that's not an easy thing to do, but I think I'm not, it's not complete. I mean, like Jacina, I have my hopeless days, but, um, you know, I think we can do that. But we do need to be 
uh, you know, we, we need to be thinking about the lifeboat and building the lifeboat now and um, pretty much giving up on the old hulk that many of us, most of us know, I think is, is kind of sinking beneath the waves. So, you know, we've got a big job of construction to do right now. Mm. And the metaphor's a bit on the nose as well, because there are so many people that are already in lifeboats that we need to be giving our solidarity to. Right, right. Thinking about how they're going to eat. Absolutely. Thank you. You reminded me of my favourite quote and David Fleming's Lean Logic, where he says, localization stands at best at the limits of practical possibility, but has a decisive argument in its favour that there will be no alternative. So how might we bring this about? I guess just to, to pull our conversation to a close. Jazina, Land in Our Name is part of a much wider movement for land reform. Uh, and Chris, you wrote in, in, in your book of a place where progressive populisms of today can meet with a small farm agrarian populism inherited from the first populist movements in ways fit for present times that enable people to provision themselves locally and take care for themselves of themselves collectively in the challenging circumstances that are now upon us. I wonder how you both see the political side of this. What are the alliances that we need to build? What's, how, how are we going to get there? What, what, what do we need to mobilise? Josina? I think that there's work to be done with progressive landowners. And I'm really happy that there's been people who've reached out to Lion and said, like, okay, I'm due to inherit some land, but I don't necessarily want to do what my dad or granddad or great-granddad has been doing on the land for ages. People that, are, you know, have got some ecology in their mindset, people who um, acknowledge like maybe how their family came to own the land and that there's murky pasts connected to colonialism or land theft involved in that. So that's part of the alliance work that we're trying to build. And a big thread of our work is around reparations and thinking about how do we repair the land and repair ourselves from you know the horrific harm and injustice that was caused by colonialism, enslavement, imperialism, and land reparations is part of that. And, you know, we're looking internationally and trying to build solidarity with struggles in the global south around land and the people who are water defenders and people that that we can really learn from about how to organise, but then also in the States. And they've got a much more advanced conversation around land reparations and thinking about indigenous populations and African populations that, you know, brought over by enslavements and, you know, a longer history of land work because of that. There's a ton of things that are happening around land justice and I'm still quite new to the field. So um, learning about what, what the history of it is in Britain. There's a ton of work to do and our portion of that is making sure that Black people and people of colour, that our needs are represented in the wider land justice movement and that we're not forgotten when it comes to thinking about environmental degradation or how to have a more harmonious relationship with the land. And in terms of land justice, no, in terms of racial justice, sorry, all of the things that impede or impact on our health and well-being, that land is an invisible element of that. So solidarity with people who, well, from people who are caring about land justice for racial justice issues is a significant thread that we keep trying to, you know, draw and straddling the two movements, basically. Fabulous. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for the work you do. It's glorious. Wonderful. Thank you. Well, thank you. Chris, 
Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, you mentioned populism, which I've written about a bit in the book. And of course, you know, all of the sort of political words we have have so much complexity and baggage that, you know, populism obviously is is a bit of a dirty word in, in many ways. But, you know, I guess there's a whole tradition of agrarian, uh, sort of collective agrarian populism globally. Basically, it kind of means peasant activism. Uh, and so I talk about the first populist moment globally in, in the, the 19th century when the majority of people were small-scale farmers and were articulating their rights and needs. Of course, nowadays, certainly in a country like Britain, the majority of people aren't farmers. And I suppose what I talk about in the book, you know, it's a really difficult argument because you know I don't have an an awful lot of faith in central governments solving these problems or building the lifeboats for us you know I think what's going to happen is central governments are going to sort of try and draw more from people and offer less to people and there's going to be all sorts of chaotic uh, opportunities yeah there there will be chaos governments will withdraw somewhat from their peripheries and people are going to be sort of thrown onto their own resources and this is going to be in a context with a lot of migration of people from cities to the countryside from lower latitude countries countries that are threatened with climate change climate refugeeism people looking for farmland so you know it's not hard to imagine that the sort of conflicts that might arise in that situation but i think in some ways, what I try and do in the book is talk about the possibilities for creating something positive in that situation where it's a little bit like Rebecca Solnit's book. Uh, I think she talks about a paradise made in hell where when everything is changing, when people are having to figure out how to create food, how to create a whole new society for themselves, it creates opportunities for new commons new types of collaboration where people work together. And of course that, you know, I don't want to be too naive about that. I mean, the sort of things that Jacina has talked about, racism, colonial disparities, you know, whole histories of who owns the land and who doesn't, you know, are going to be in that mix. And I, I talk about that a little bit, probably not enough in the book. But, you know, that is the context in which I think we can potentially create a new agrarian populism where people it's going to be in people's interest to figure out with, with each other how to create functioning agrarian societies in a situation of, of great turbulence and chaos where sort of basically nobody has a kind of secure basis necessarily from which to, um, uh, you know, to, to operate. So we have to kind of reinvent this together. I mean, that's the, that's the best case scenario. But, I, you know, and I, I think it, it may be possible, uh, hopefully, in some situations. Wonderful. Well, we could talk all day and it would get more and more fascinating, I'm sure, but I, I, we need to draw it to a close at this point. So I'd just like to thank you both so, so much for joining me today. It's been a glorious conversation. Thank you, Rob. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you to you also for listening. My thanks, as always, to Ben Adicott for sound production and theme music, and we'll see you next time. 